Good morning. Well, it's uh, it, it's again a privilege to be here, an honor to um, uh, a joy to worship with you, and an honor to be able to uh, preach the word this morning. We take great delight in, in worshiping with uh, what we still consider our home church. Um, it was five years ago to uh, this month that I graduated from Truett Seminary, so the time is uh, is marching on. Uh, Things are going well in, in, in Las Cruces, and uh, we appreciate that this congregation faithfully prays for us. Um, if you don't know, I have a five-year-old son named Jonathan, and uh, this year was his first year, this summer was his first year to participate in any kind of team sport, and we put him in swimming, which I know is an individual sport, but he, he swam on a team, and and um, and we tried to encourage him to understand the value of, of um, being on a, on a team and participating each week and uh, that he showed up, that he was able to be there. Well, one, one afternoon we uh, had dropped him off with the coach to go to his lane to swim his warm-up laps. And my wife and I were sitting there talking with a couple of other uh, parents. And the next thing, I look up and I see the coach walking back toward us with Jonathan just sobbing uncontrollably in tears. And, and so, obviously, I, I jump up and, and run to him to find out what is wrong. Well, the, the problem for Jonathan this morning is, or this afternoon where, he, where he's swimming, is that this, the team that he's swimming against, their mascot is the Tiger Sharks. And they had made the decision to paint their mascot on the bottom of the pool, in every lane, three or four sharks all the way down the pool. Well, Jonathan wasn't getting in that water. He decided that those sharks were just real enough that he wasn't going to trust himself to swim that lane fast enough to uh, escape the sharks. So I, I, would, I pulled him to me. I, I used reason and rationality. I pointed to the shark on the wall that was just like it. I mean, it's just a black outline of a shark. And I said, see, son, that's paint, right? Yeah, that's paint. I said, could that shark hurt you? No. And I said, well, then why can't you swim? And he said, because those are scary sharks. <laughs> now, I tell that story because, um, as, as you can well imagine, my, my rationality and reason just didn't overcome the five-year-old's thinking and imagination when it came to the sharks on the bottom of the pool. And as I sat there trying to figure out how to love my son, how to parent him in that moment, I realized that nothing I'd read, nothing any of you've told me, nothing any of my friends have told me about how to parent could explain to me what I was supposed to do in that moment. Nothing. Was I to um, pull him tight and hold him close and tell him that it would be okay? That there will be another day to swim, that of course you don't have to swim. I'm not going to force you into the pool. Or do I send him on out there and say, come on, son, there's, there's going to be things like this in life, fears that you're going to have to overcome. You need to just get out there and swim and you'll get over it. I know that the sharks aren't going to harm him. But there's obviously implications to both choices. There's no clear answer. And frankly, I was just mad. I was mad that there was no book. No instruction that could tell me what to do in that moment. I think many of us wonder at our own lives as we look around at our own selves or the world around us and we want that book. 
We want somebody to give us an answer, and we frankly get mad when it doesn't work out. When we're uh, given a situation that we have no that we have no clear answer. That we think being Christians, that understanding the true word of God, that being able to work through these things or have wisdom input to us, that we would be able to clearly understand a particular situation given. But that's just not always the case. And it unsettles us. It causes us to perhaps run to other things, easy answers or wrong answers, just because they're answers. Today, the passage raises the very question that uh, that's before us. What do we do when the world doesn't match the pat answers that we hold? What do we do when our circumstances won't allow us an easy out? That there's no formula to fix it. What do we do? How do we answer the questions? Where do we find resolution? What do we do when our hearts begin to shrink Or we begin to get angry just because things are not working the way we want them to. Please turn, if you will, to Psalm 73. It's a very well-known psalm and a great one. I'm going to ask that you, if you are able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, as people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may may fail, 
But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near you, near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a time set aside where the rest, the eternal rest that we were made to know and experience, to live in, breaks into our lives. Through the preaching of the word, through the prayers of your people, through the sacraments that you have given us, Lord, you give us rest. We thank you for Christ who is the one who has purchased rest for us, through whom we enter it. May you do this for your people this morning. May you do it through your word, by the power of your spirit. Illumine our hearts and minds. May this word go forward and produce fruit. We ask all these things for your sake, for your glory, and in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. You know, much of, uh, much of the Christian life as I grew up in it was uh, taught to me as a sort of paint-by-numbers thing. And I've realized that it just doesn't work that way. Paint-by-numbers is fine for my son, my five-year-old, but it will not ever capture the realities of life. So what do we do when life does not make sense, when it doesn't measure up? Is there an answer for us? I found this psalm to be so refreshing and helpful. Just one, because it's honest. The question that Asaph asks are are questions that we can all see ourselves asking. Why do the wicked prosper? A very common question. Why do the righteous suffer? Honest, searching questions. And the answer kind of surprised me, actually. So hopefully this morning, as we look, we will see the answer that God wants us to see. Asaph, uh, the first thing you just need to know about him as a person is he's from the tribe of Levi. He um, had been put in charge, along with three others, as kind of heads of their families of worship in the tabernacle. The questions that Asaph asking then are not born of skepticism. But they're born of faith. The psalm actually starts with its conclusion. God is good, truly. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, the conclusion of the entire psalm, the the conclusion of what he's wanting to take us through, he states outright at the beginning. But then he leads us into his, his envy and doubt. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had slipped. What is the problem that Asaph sees in this passage? We're just going to look through it. We're going to look at then how we, uh, I think, can connect with this in ways that maybe we do the same things. We're going to look at the turning point for Asaph, what caused him to turn and be able to come to the point where he says that God is good. And then we're going to see the meaning of those things for us, even in the midst of the season of Advent. So that's where we're going. The problem that Asaph sees is he looks around and he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Um, He goes on for uh, nine verses talking about the arrogant, the wicked. They prosper. They have no pangs until death. He says they live a, a life of ease. 
until death. There is no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They have all that they need. They live in comfort without toil or trouble. He looks and he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Not only do they live a life of ease, but then on top of it, they wear it around as a matter of pride. They scoff at those around them. It says their pride is their necklace. They wear it as a garment. They're arrogant in this life. The psalmist sees them and he's mad. He's mad because this doesn't match his worldview. There's something wrong with this. The wicked are not supposed to prosper. A paint-by-numbers view of spirituality will tell you that you reap what you sow. The wicked should not prosper. They should live under judgment. They should be hungry. They should be homeless. But instead, he looks and sees that they prosper. And not only that, they talk trash about it. The second thing that he sees that makes it even harder for him, we see in verse 13 and 14. He says, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands for all day long. I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. The psalmist lives stricken and rebuked. He says, I've worked at innocence. I've kept my heart clean, yet I'm the one under the pressure. I'm the one being rebuked. I'm the one whose body's falling apart. I'm the one that looks at the world and says, this isn't right. I'm the one that feels the weight of my own sin. Rebuked, stricken under the weight of his own suffering. See, the paint-by-numbers view of Christianity or the Christian life will tell you that the wicked don't prosper. Cheaters never win. And the Christian life is victorious. That if you um, come into this club that we call Christianity, that somehow you get fixed and things are right. And I don't know, there's birds always singing and there's rainbows in the clouds. And it's... it's um, a life that we all can look at and go, that's just not true. The problem is that this is what we all kind of long for. You know, I went to, um, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Baylor University and I kind of, I, I realized that this campus, if you're a student here, that there's this whole environment of Christianity that will tell you that believers don't suffer and the wicked don't prosper. There's a whole culture of Christianity that says, if you're messed up, if you're suffering, and if you're struggling over your suffering, or God forbid that you would doubt the goodness of God in the midst of it, then you're not a good Christian. Somehow there's something wrong with you. And the psalmist feels the weight of that and says, what is wrong? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. One of the things I tell my students, and I'll say it here because I think it it needs to be said. There is no such thing as a good Christian. 
We live in a world that tells you that this, if you look like this, and and doesn't matter what circles you're in, our circles do this too. So it's not just those people out there, we do this. We'll say, if you want to be a good Christian, these are the kinds of things you do. This is the kind of schooling you put your children through or don't put your children through. This is the um, kinds of things you read and don't read. These are the names you drop and don't drop. And if you if you fit into that, then you're a good Christian. But if you're somewhere outside of that circle of definition, then you may be a Christian, but you're not a good one. We all live under the weight of that. We need to destroy that very notion. There is no such thing as a good Christian. There's a such thing as those who have been redeemed and called out. There are Christians and those who are not. People of God, our concepts of these things lead us to envy the arrogant. To envy those who are outside. To envy those who have no place before God. Because we've set up a view of prosperity in our own Christian lives. We've set up an idea for what the wicked should look like. For what their troubles and trials should or should not be. And what our trials should and should not be. And they're just not biblical. So two of his problems are he sees the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the believer. But the third one is that he has to deal with his own sin. I mean, he's struggling You've got to see this. He is struggling with his own sin. Verse 3, I envied the arrogant. Not only is he looking at them and saying, this doesn't match up, but he's saying, I kind of want what they got. I, I like that. I wish I had their ease and peace. I want their lives. I want that to be true of me. I envy them. I don't want to live as one who has suffered, who is suffering. He's embittered in soul, verse 21 and 22. This has gripped him so deeply that his soul has become embittered. He was pricked to his heart. He was brutish and ignorant. He was like a beast. The psalmist is capturing the own, his own inner turmoil of sin. This is not um, mere problems with the world matching up with his theology. It's a problem with his heart that would rather fit another grid on what it means to be in the kingdom of God. He wants to take a grid that says prosperity and health are the way of the life of a Christian, one who knows God. Last thing I want you to see about his own sin, and this comes from his confession in the beginning, the conclusion that he comes to is that God is good. He really is struggling with whether or not God is good to those who seek him, to those who call on his name, to those whom he's placed his name upon, Israel. His question is, God, I see this going on. Are you really good? Ultimately, this is the the root of our struggle. This is where we stumble. This is where when students, I have conversations with them about uh, dating. You know, students want to talk about this a lot. 
And they come to me and, and they explain their circumstance, which is usually, look, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And I, I really want to uh, date this boy who's not a Christian, but he's so good looking. And he's really nice to me. And I say, um, well, you can't date him. And they say, I know, but I really want to. And as we poke around and try to figure out why is it that this Christian person is wanting to date someone, that the Bible just comes flat out and says, you can't date them. Why they do that? The, the reality is that they just don't believe that God is good enough to provide someone in his own timing. And so they go about looking at their world around them and say, I will take control of this and do this myself. God is not good enough to do this. God is not good enough in the waiting. God is not good enough in the circumstance. God is not good enough that I can wait and trust and hope in Him. And I look around and begin to struggle and search after and even envy the arrogant. So how do we do this? I've just given you one example that is true in the lives of my um, students. I think there's a Maybe a couple of ways that we do it, or a couple of ways I want to talk about anyway. We do it overtly. If you're in the business world, perhaps the way you find this creeping into your own thinking is to get ahead in the business world, you, found your, you find yourself saying, yeah, my ethics here are business world ethics. And it's okay that they don't match up, because to get ahead in this business, I've really got to do this. Stab someone in the back. Sacrifice my family to get to where I want to be. Perhaps the way we spend our money. I find it fascinating that our response to the culture that rejects Christianity is to quit shopping. The way we spend our money, the way we define love and romance... The way we entertain ourselves. We envy the arrogant. We seek after a culture of ease and prosperity in many ways. Myself included. But a little more subtle way that I think uh, creeps into our thinking that's maybe um, uh, will hit home this morning. Is that we do it in in our self-righteousness. Talked about a culture of spiritual success. We seek to, and we envy and seek to live according to those who tell us. The observation, listen to this, the observation of the psalmist does not exist for the good Christian. I mean, there are those who would tell you that the psalmist is not a good Christian because he's experiencing the very thing that he's experiencing. Doubt over the way the world is working. In other words, we look at a culture of success and baptize it as the Christian view of success. We want people to be well-managed, clean and neat. We want them to look like us. We envy those who do. We guard and protect and strategize ways to look better on the outside when our world is crumbling on the inside. Is there a place for the suffering of the Christian? In your mind and in your thinking. Is there a place for the suffering of one who comes into your small group 
And it's obvious that there's, there's this turmoil is beginning to break out and it's coming out of their mouths. I've been in this circumstance and the whole group, it's like the person's on fire and we just want to put them out. Don't tell me you're messed up. Please. Do you have a place for one who struggles, who doubts, who doesn't have all the answers? I think our self-righteousness creates this idea and it makes it very comfortable for us as Christians because we never have to get into people's lives where it gets really messy. Messy. The psalmist finds himself experiencing what, what I picture in my mind. You know, one of the things that I, I noticed about Jonathan is he loves the swimming pool, knows how to swim, but we go to, the, we go to the, the beach every year and he does not really like the beach. And as I thought about it, I've come to realize why that is. The ocean's big. I mean, you think about this, when you're a child, you look at the ocean, it is overwhelming. And the moment you step in it, it's unsettling. It moves. And if you stand in one place, the sand begins to drift from under your feet. And if you stand there long enough, you will be pulled out into this abyss. It's scary. The psalmist finds his feet being pulled out from under him. He finds the sand settling from under his feet and the ground on which he stood Moving. People of God. Do you find yourself with a heart and feet that are slipping? Are you stumbling as you look at the world and look at your life, look at your own sin and go, God, help me. This Christian thing is not working out for me. I'm still messed up. I'm still struggling with my sin. I still suffer from whatever illness and disease. My body is breaking. I watch my children get older. And I realize that life is short. And I'm going to die. And there's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with a world that's broken and fallen. And our feet begin to slip from under us. What I want you to see is that the turning point of the psalmist is not what I expected it to be. It comes in verse 16 and 17. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their ends. Now there's, this was, I, I was like, what do you mean the sanctuary of God? What does that mean? Some commentators actually think that he went to some sort of, uh, I don't know, he, he went and prayed. Not, not saying there's anything wrong with prayer. And, but they make it this kind of almost mystical uh, subjective experience where he goes and he finds God and God meets him somewhere inside of himself and he fixes him. That's not what's going on here. 
The answer is not found inside of you. As a matter of fact, the reason that most of Christianity does, has no answer to this is because they're, t- they're sending you inside yourself. The psalmist goes to a place outside of himself. The sanctuary of God is the tabernacle or the temple. It's very simple. He goes to the tabernacle. Now, why would this change his mind? Why would this be the thing that, that completely shifts his thinking? One is in the tabernacle. He would have seen the holiness of God pictured for him. There was layers of curtains and there were different courts of the temple or the tabernacle. And it removed the, the sinner from the Holy of Holies where God dwelled. And he would have seen a beautiful tapestry with cherubim in, in the, the cloth that separated the different portions of the tabernacle. He would have seen bronze and silver and fine wood. He would have seen a picture of the holiness of God. He would have seen that there was a separation to this holiness. He would have seen a God who does not endure sinful people. He would have seen beauty. The lampstand itself was 75 pounds worth of gold. Colored yarn was expensive and used to weave the fabrics of the curtain. They were dyed from a process that took, uh, it was very time intensive. He would have seen beauty and majesty. He would have seen perfection. The command uh, from God in the, in the command for the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 is one of perfection. It's to be done at God's direction according to His pattern that He set. But I think more importantly than all of these things, you've got to realize that the tabernacle would have been a sensory experience. Not only would he have seen all these things, but he would have smelled blood. If you've never smelled blood like that, you've got to understand that it has a very distinct odor. And in the tabernacle, daily, constantly, one historian says there was a river of blood flowing out of the tabernacle. Because so much sacrifice was going on. He would have smelled the blood. He would have heard the bleeding of animals. He would have smelled smoke as the the animals were consumed on the altar. He would have seen God who provides for sinful people. He would have seen a God who has come to earth to dwell among sinners. The fascinating thing about the temple is the entrance that he would have walked through was on the east. And it's pictured, and I don't know if he thought this, but as I'm thinking through it, it's a picture of walking back into the gate of the garden where you've been cast out because you're a sinner. And he walks in, and he sees, and smells, and hears the Word of God being read. He hears the prayers and the praises of the people. And he says, God has come down To dwell with me. Everything about the tabernacle would have communicated that the psalmist has no place with God. Except that God has provided for it in the sacrifice of the temple. Do you understand that? 
The very fact that the psalmist said, I went to the sanctuary of God. I went to the place that God dwells on earth with His people. The place from which He has promised to establish His kingdom, as we read in 2 Samuel today. A house for His name. A house where He dwells with His people. A house where He endures with sinners. A house where provision is made for people like Him who could envy the arrogant and doubt the goodness of God. And also a place where He saw what would happen to those who don't know God. A place where wrath and judgment is clearly pictured. I mean, if you can imagine bringing a sheep to the tabernacle, stretching its neck tight and cutting its throat. The psalmist saw these things outside of himself. The great reality is that he does not turn inward, but he turns to a sacrifice and a God who has come for sinful people. Surely this is too good to be true. God has come. God has come for his people. He dwells among them and now he dwells on them, in them. You are the sanctuary of God. You are the one on whom God rests. You are the ones, the church, the people of God, where he has placed his name, where he has chosen to dwell, where he has chosen to extend his kingdom through you. The problem for most of us is that we don't believe that that's impossible. We really think that we're good enough for God to just give us heaven now. Instead of understanding that He's dwelling on sinful people and He is building His kingdom through us. And His name and His glory is being extended to the ends of the earth through His people. The conclusion that he comes to, the thing that holds his heart steadfast, the thing that plants his feet on solid ground is that he sees in the tabernacle, in the sanctuary of God, that God has made a way of judgment and mercy for sinners. And then look at what he says. This is his, his language begins to change from I and they to you. 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Basically, he summarized right there for all of us, justification, sanctification, and glorification. What he's seen in the temple is that God has made a way of sacrifice for sinners. That God has made a way to carry us along. That you will continually be with me. That you dwell with your people and you will deliver me to glory. Heaven on earth in the tabernacle. Salvation from beginning to end is displayed for the psalmist and he sees it. You took hold of me. You walk with me continually and you will deliver me to glory. 
our faith in the gospel, in the, the work and in the sacrifice takes hold, keeps and brings us to glory. God's arm is not too short. Yes, your heart slip. Yes, you struggle. Yes, this life is full of suffering and even bitterness. But God's arm takes hold, keeps, and brings you to glory. And what do you get? You get God. I mean, look at what he says there. Verse 26 through 28. My flesh and my heart fail. Yes. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion, that word is is. Could be translated my inheritance, but usually when this particular word is used, it's not my inheritance, it's my divvy of the inheritance. When the inheritance come, when this life is through, when the kingdom of God is opened up and treasures are broken open, you get God. God is divvied up. He is your portion. He is the strength of your heart. He is the one who comes to save Sinners. And you have Him. Do you believe it? We're celebrating Advent. And we are told that Christ came in the flesh. And He was the tabernacle among us. That He was God with His people. That He was God veiled in the flesh. And because He was the center of that sacrificial system, because He fulfilled all the things that the psalmist was pointing us to, that the psalmist was seeing in the tabernacle, that those things were pointing us to, that you have an inheritance with God. It's an amazing thing, I believe, when my, that we live in this life in these fractured, failing bodies, in hearts that fail, that slip, eyes that wander and envy the world around us, that God has come and placed His hand upon us, taken hold of us, and dwells with us. This life, And He extends His glory through the fragile, broken frailty of your vessel and this vessel, the church. Our hearts are strengthened not by going in and working up some some internal reality, some something that we do. It's from looking outward to the sacrifice. Of Christ, to the blood that was spilled, to the wrath that was poured out, and to the judgment that is to come. And we taste heaven now. We taste heaven now. We take hold of these things by faith. Two, two summers ago, we were in Corsica. Um, if you're wondering, 
my father-in-law gave us the tickets. We don't have the money to go to Corsica on our salary. But um, we were in Corsica, and it was the last day at the beach, and, and I happened to, Jonathan wanted to go to the beach one last time, so I was there with him alone, and we went to this different beach, and it was a beach that, that um, out, I, I, I looked out across it, out over the ocean, and a storm was, was gathering miles and miles off the beach. But, it was, but this beach happened to be more exposed, and so there was a little shelf of sand, but it began to drop off really quickly, about six feet out. And Jonathan was four at the time, and he's, he's playing, obviously, on the shelf. Because not too far after the drop-off, it, gets over, it would get over his head. So I'm sitting there watching and reading a book, but, but more watching him run and play. And um, I notice that the waves begin to pick up. Uh, and I, I start watching him, and he's, he's losing control of his ability to handle the, the motion of the water. And so I kind of start easing toward him. He's playing. He has no idea what's going on. And in, before I could get down to where he was, he gets to the edge of this little shelf, gets caught in the, 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 the undertow. And behind the undertow, you know how when the undertow is the strongest, the, the next wave is the biggest. And I'm watching. He's getting sucked down this little, little um, drop off. And I can see in my son's eyes the fear Sheer terror because he knows what's happening. He's getting pulled by a force that can't, he cannot control. And the next wave, it's, it, I can just see it in my mind vividly. The next wave is already, uh, is already engulfing him and I see the fear in his eyes. And he's looking to me, wondering if I will take hold of him. He's about to be sucked out to, to see where he has no hope in the world. And I grab him. I pull him up as close as you can imagine. Because I've just seen terror in my son's eyes that I've never seen before. And I hold him close. And you know what he asked me? He says, Daddy, will you always be there for me? And I said, yes, son. By God's grace, I will always be there for you. What the psalmist says is, yes, you're getting sucked out to sea. But God, God's arm reaches down, grabs you, pulls you close, and will not let you 